Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills to take your career to the next level. We do this by learning directly from top industry leaders making significant contributions to our industry today. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. In today's episode, we'll speak with Peter Elger. He's the founder and CEO of Fortherum, which is a technology consulting company based in Ireland and the US. Peter is also a serial entrepreneur in the technology and data space, and he's also an author. His latest book is called AI as a Service, Harness serverless AI solutions. And during the interview, we discuss his career background, the companies that he started and has been involved in. And we also talk about the learnings coming out of his consulting work and his latest book. As you'll hear, I thought his book was fantastic. It teaches you how to quickly harness the power of serverless computing and cloud-based AI services. It's a hands-on guide I ask him lots of questions around it, and I'll put the link on the show notes for you. I hope you're having a wonderful week, and I hope that you enjoy the episode with Peter Elger. Hi, this is Felipe, and today I'm speaking with Peter. Thanks so much for being on the show, Peter. Thanks, Felipe, and really appreciate you uh, you taking the time and having me on the show. Oh, I've been really looking forward to speaking with you, and I've got lots of questions for you about your new and very interesting book. And so at the beginning, I wanted to ask you, how did you get started in the world of data in general? You've had such an interesting background. How did the journey start for you? That's an interesting question, and I guess I do have a varied and uh, torturous path. So I started off, I suppose, from a young age, always being very interested in science in general, and particularly in physics. My first experience with a computer would have been with a ZX Spectrum. I don't know if uh, a lot of your audience are familiar with those machines, but they were available in the 1980s, by uh, produced in Cambridge, I think, by a guy called Clive Sinclair. And my first computer had a, an enormous amount of memory, all of 48K, if you can believe that. So that's where I started uh, programming. Actually, interestingly enough, I was in Cambridge recently working with a client and they were actually in the Sinclair Computers building. Display of old Sinclair computers, the ZX81, the ZX Spectrum and various models. And I I did feel a little bit unworthy to be there, to be honest with you. But it was an interesting experience. So I suppose from there, I had an interest in uh, in science, as I said, and um, my real passion was physics. So my first degree was in theoretical physics. And then I had a summer job at uh, Rutherford Appleton Laboratories, which is near my hometown in uh, Oxfordshire. And I started writing Fortran on a VAX in the high high energy physics cluster, just doing kind of like what interns do, which is kind of write code for other people. But it really gave me the bug around kind of numerical computing and and tying that to physics. So once I'd completed my first degree, I went off and did a master's in computer science because I was interested in learning a lot more about the underlying techniques and theory of computing. And I was very lucky from there to actually be able to combine both of those passions for the first seven years of my career when I started working at the Jet Joint Undertaking. For those of you that are unfamiliar, it's a a nuclear fusion research facility, again, in in Oxfordshire. Jet, I think for a time, it may still possibly be true, is the largest tokamak research facility in the world. So it's a magnetic containment device that holds plasma to attempt to recreate the conditions in the center of the sun in order to generate power. So nuclear fusion, of course, is a lot cleaner than uh, fission, which is uh, what all commercial reactors are based on. That was an interesting experience, and I count myself very lucky to be able to have worked there for that period of time. Um, The kind of work I was doing there would have been a lot of data acquisition systems.
systems, so high-performance data acquisition of various custom scientific instruments. So that would have been visible light spectroscopy, um, infrared spectroscopy, mass spectroscopy, residual gas analysis, and a whole range of different systems, and also then plasma control and feedback mechanisms. I remember one very interesting system. So there's a lot of different technologies in JET that go into actually heating the plasma to create the large temperature gradients that, that we have there. And one of them is called uh, radio frequency heating, where you pump radio waves into this plasma to increase the temperature. And there's a couple of ways of what's called impedance matching so that you get the maximum amount of energy into the plasma. One, of course, is to change the frequency of the radio waves that are going in. And the other is physically adjust the antenna position, which, as you can imagine, is a very slow regime. I remember writing one system whereby we were looking for iron spikes or iron signals within the plasma, which meant the plasma had actually touched the antenna in the walls and actually vaporized some of the iron off the antenna. So that gave you an idea that we can now wow. pull back or, or move in. So it was those types of systems and that type of data that we were processing there. So I guess back then, this would have been about 94 to 2000, so mid-90s, we were doing big data. But I suppose at the time, we didn't call it big data. It was just data to us. We were dealing with about, in total, and obviously growing, around four to five terabytes yeah. of uh, scientific data, which isn't an awful lot these days with the kind of data volumes that we have. But back in the day, uh, that was a lot of data, yeah. right? So uh, actually, part of what I was doing there, as well as writing the, the data collection systems, was actually then aggregating that data up through some middleware and eventually archiving it onto a mainframe. I think we were running an IBM 3090 mainframe. So a lot of tape drives, a robotic arm to fetch data and so on. In fact, we did actually write a uh, web-based interface. Eventually, as, as the web started to grow in popularity, people were wanting to access the data remotely for analysis. And so we built a web interface over that data store. And uh, we had to do kind of HTTP keeper lives because uh, depending on which bit of data you were fetching, sometimes it would be fetched from disk and sometimes it would be fetched from tape. And so your HTTP request is being kept open whilst the robot arm, when it fetched the tape, restored from backup and then delivered the data to you. So it was, uh, it wow. was certainly a place to work. Yeah, um, it's like meeting of the two worlds, the new and the old. Exactly, yeah. So it was fun. And there was also, you know, doing a lot of data analytics and so on. So that was primarily in Fortran, along with some MATLAB and things like that. So um, as I said, that was really kind of an area to cut my teeth. So from there, I suppose it got to a point where I figured I, either I was going to be institutionalized in research forever, or I could go out and do something more commercial. So I figured I'd go and do yes. something more commercial. What led you to that decision? I think it was a couple of things, really. At the time, Jetted, the project was kind of going through a phase change, and it felt like the right time. Also, if you recall, we're in kind of 99-2000 era. That was the middle of the dot-com boom before the dot-com crash. So it was becoming more and more interesting to see as the kind of digitization and the web was starting to grow rapidly, that there are kind of entrepreneurial opportunities there as well, which I found exciting and a different kind of challenge. So I actually went out and started working for a startup company, but this company was doing disaster recovery. So it was slightly different to the kind of web stuff that was going on. But I did it because it was a real kind of technical challenge. That company was called Indico Stone and eventually sold to EMC. And what we were doing was profiling systems in order to cut down the restore time. I don't know if you recall, back in those days, we didn't have cloud. We didn't have any of that. So businesses that had to keep operating had to have a disaster recovery plan. And that recovery plan usually involved bringing lots of data into a business recovery center. Those 
centers were run by the likes of IBM, SunGuard, and people like that. The problem was at the time that you had to match uh, like-for-like hardware in order to restore your entire system back onto it. So the technology that we built there was to profile the system and be able to restore functionality onto non-like hardware, allowing the customer to then come in and just play their tapes back into the new system. That was an interesting problem. So I left that company after a couple of years for personal reasons because I was actually moving country. So I moved from the UK to the Irish Republic. And uh, when I moved to Ireland, I got interested in telecoms. So I started working in telecommunications research, working with different signaling stacks. So that was at the time when a lot of the infrastructure was looking at moving over to IP-based signaling rather than the kind of traditional telco protocols. And I did a, a fair bit of work around customer experience management, working with large customer data sets. So uh, working with network switches to pull telemetry from them and then derive results from those. So for example, if you have a corporate account, what's the percentage of dropped calls on that corporate account and how can you then improve that for the customer? So again, a fair bit of fairly chunky data analysis going on there. That's um, right. Exactly right. Um, and it's great that it was centralized. It was an interesting uh, an interesting uh, area to work in. I then joined an, a startup company which was working in interactive radio, and we raised some money. We thought we were going to do you know change the world, and then we hit 2008, and uh, <laughs> that was quite a painful experience because the company ran out of money and we had to wind things up. But at the time, what was happening was that the social media was beginning to rise, so we started to see Twitter and Facebook grow. So myself and two other guys from that company set up another company and just went again and started building marketing applications on top of Facebook. And we grew that business pretty effectively. We had some fairly significant customers. We took teams of engineers over to Facebook and worked directly with the guys there. And eventually we ended up raising a chunk of cash and we've now pivoted that company into a marketing platform for retailers that sits across Facebook and Instagram. The company is now called Stitcher Ads. It's going very well. I'm still uh, involved in the company, but not on a, on a day-to-day basis. During that time, myself and another colleague had uh, really identified and recognized Node.js. We'd been through different languages, of course, and we'd done a lot of Java, and we both become increasingly interested in JavaScript and the, the, the power of JavaScript to develop applications and, and to really push out into, into areas where it wasn't initially expected to go. So we set up a company called Nearform, which was really, I guess, the, one of the first kind of bespoke Node.js consultancies. Back then, of course, all of the Node.js modules in the world actually were able to fit on one GitHub page. So you can imagine that was that was pretty yes. early days, very early days, in fact. We were putting systems live in Node.js back in, I think it was 0.2, something like that, where we didn't really wow. have a right to putting them live, but it worked. So yeah, we grew that company. We started running the NodeConf EU, uh, which I believe is still running again this year in November in Ireland. We built up to about 120 staff or so. I'm doing a lot of work wow. with large corporates across the US and Europe and really getting involved in a lot of digital transactions transformation work and also getting involved in uh, platform modernization work as well. I exited the company in 2017 and set up my current venture, which is Four Theorem. And really the basis for setting up Four Theorem was that looking down the line, myself and my co-founders believed that not just the kind of business world in general, but the software industry itself will be profoundly affected by AI and machine learning. And therefore, the premise of this company is that to continue with digital transformation work, but to actually adopt more modern 
modern cloud architectures, so to adopt serverless as our primary way of building systems and to then be able to deliver business value to our clients beyond the just the transformation to help them actually realize the value of the data that's then collected from those systems through a combination of data science, analytics, and increasingly machine learning. We've actually just won a couple of million in funding from the Irish government in conjunction with uh, Dublin City University on a project to convert old monolithic applications into systems that are ready to be deployed in a serverless nature to the cloud. And the reason we were able to get that funding is that it's a huge problem because what we're seeing now in the market is that even the laggards in the industry that are still running their systems on-premise or in colo can now no longer avoid the economics of the cloud and the economic benefits of that. So we think there's going to be a lot of that kind of modernization and transformation that's going to need to occur because the lift and shift model doesn't really take account of the, the economic benefits. So we see that we're moving to a world now of true utility computing. And I don't just mean like running functions in the cloud. I mean the entire range of services that includes data management, data pipelining, analytics, and machine learning services. And that was really the reason for writing the book was to provide an engineer's guide to how you uh, pragmatically start to take advantage of these services. So the book is AI as a Service, and it's really about how non-machine learning experts can take advantage of these technologies that are available through an API set. So you still have to have an understanding of what you're doing and the data and the kind of algorithms you can apply, but you don't necessarily need to be a kind of PhD in machine learning to be able to apply these techniques to -to day-to-day business problems. That is outstanding. And there's so many elements jumped out to me. The first one is that you've been so technical in your career and done such hardcore work. But at the same time, you have both a commercial lens and the entrepreneurial bug. And obviously demonstrated by the commercial lens in terms of a focus on on adding value from the use of technology. And then the entrepreneurial bug by being a serial startup entrepreneur. How do you balance the three and tell me more about your views on that? So back in the day, I do remember in the kind of 90s and maybe early noughties that if you were beyond a certain age and still doing technical things, you were considered to be a failure for some reason. I never really understood the kind of logic behind that. It was almost the the idea that you needed to transition to management because the next generation was coming up behind you and they were going to be a lot better than you just because of the kind of raw brain power of youth, I think, was maybe the logic. And maybe that was derived from the idea that mathematicians tend to do all of their best work in their early 20s. I strongly disagree with that viewpoint. And I think that the world has certainly changed around that and that maintaining a grip on technology and an interest and actually still doing technical things is really important. That experience is of huge value. And I think the world recognizes that now. We've had too many failed software projects where we've just thrown a bunch of undergraduates at a problem and said and expected it to be solved. And it doesn't get solved, of course. It's, It's as in any other discipline, the experience is very important. I still do write code. I mean, my role is CEO of the company, but I still write code. And those are the days that I actually enjoy the most. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy the entrepreneurial piece. I enjoy the buzz of getting a sale, but there's nothing quite like sitting down and actually just immersing yourself in a technical problem for a day and losing track of time. And how was your transition from doing the deep technical work to start bringing in more of a commercial lens and more of that entrepreneurial bug as you went from like the nuclear fission research to the disaster recovery and then to the telecommunications. It seemed like you were almost moving more and more into the world of business. Is that fair to say? What do you think? 
Yeah, I think it is fair to say. And I think, I suppose, for me, I saw it as a challenge in the sense that, okay, we can do this technical stuff, but the real problem is people, right? And it always is. I'm sure most of your listeners will understand that, that solving the analytical problems, whilst they're tough and difficult to do, they're not nearly as difficult as the people problems. And so I guess I saw it as a bit of a challenge in that, okay, can I go out into the world and make money? Can we go out and be successful in this area? So I viewed it as a just another challenge on the path and then continuing to hone those technical skills would be valuable. That's a lesson that I've learned and I'd certainly recommend to all your listeners is that if you can actually be the bridge between the business and the business needs and the technology, you become a very valuable individual for a company. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and run your own company. Within an organization, if you can build those bridges and be that kind of communicator that that connects those two things together, that's a really valuable skill set. Very true. And was your transition to that skill set deliberate or do you feel it was more organic? I think it was more organic. I'd like to say it was deliberate and I had a plan. But if I said that, I'd be lying because it wasn't really like that at all. It was more organic. I think it was driven by necessity to a large extent, right? So when the company that we were working in the startup crashed in 2008, it was really, okay, you've got to do something now. And having had it kind of experienced that startup freedom, I didn't want to go back and work for a, go and work for corporate. So therefore, what I did when we were starting the, uh, the Stitcher ads was part Part of my time was spent working on the growth of the company, and the other part was spent purely doing contracting and bringing professional services work to bankroll our activities for a time. And that kind of gave me a bug because once you've done one sale and you're able to Uh deliver satisfaction to the customer and get your invoice paid, it becomes quite addictive. Yes. So true. Yes, that's right. (laughs) So does that mean that during your time doing the startup on services for interactive radio, does that mean that during that time you were less involved on the commercial side of the company and more involved in the technical? That's correct. Yes. So I was the CTO and I was purely kind of much more of an inward platform technology focused CEO at that point. It was Uh really the kind of when that, that company went under and we had to kind of live on our wits a bit that I started to develop the more entrepreneurial aspect of my character. I suppose. And had you had or seen, or maybe looking back, do you recognize any entrepreneurial tendencies within yourself from before that moment? Not really, if I'm honest. You have people that that will give you stories about when they were young, they set up little businesses and started to make money. But to me, that wasn't really a part of my character at that point. I was just very, very interested in science and technology and all of those things and didn't really have an, an interest in the entrepreneurial piece at that stage. Apart from solving difficult problems within startup context, I think that appealed to me because of the freedom to innovate rather than working in a large organization, which can be quite quite stifling at times. It was only when that necessity pushed me, I think, that I started to get bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. And then I so, kind of wish it started a lot earlier, right? That's, uh, that's <laughs> a insight, right? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And how was that transition for you in building up the entrepreneurial side and going almost to kind of want to say like a one man business in the sense that if you can find the customers and do the sale, do the technical work, deliver on the projects, it's such a good foundation for a company when you are a unit and then that that can grow and be scaled up with other people. How was your journey towards that? That's an interesting question. So I will disagree slightly on that, right? In that uh-huh. 
I think it's dangerous to think that you can do everything. You might have that broad skill set, but I've never founded a business on my own. I've always had co-founders. When I set up this company, I deliberately chose co-founders because you need to recognize that you can't do everything and you need to recognize that you have gaps. So for me, a company is about building a kind of gestalt, is that the word? Gestalt mind, where you actually want the benefits of the groupthink because we all have gaps, we all have cognitive biases that we suffer from. Much as we like to think that we're perfect and we don't, we all do. And therefore, you need that team. You won't be successful. Well, you will be successful in, in the sense of a sole trader. But if you want to scale a company, you need those other skills and those other people in the company. But that being said, I, I kind of do take your point that having the ability to look at business and then also look at the technology as well is a very useful kind of underlying set of skills. The areas that you need to develop if you want to transition into that area is what are often termed the softer skills. So it's growing an interest in people, I'd say, is what's necessary. And I think a lot of technologists, and I would certainly count myself as one of these people originally, don't really have that much of an interest in people because people are difficult problems and computers don't lie and computers do what you tell them. Again, we could probably have a sidetrack on that. One of the great things about computers is they do what you tell them. And one of the worst things about computers is they do what you tell them, right? <laughs> um, I was going to say it's developing a knowledge of people but actually it's developing an interest in other people is what you need to kind of grow those skill sets I'm, I'm sure you know what i mean by that right definitely and how did you go about doing that building up that that skill set I think it was more just having more and more interactions and starting to deal with customers and, and starting to sell work to customers. And you start to develop an appreciation for the way that people think. So really, in order to sell to somebody, you need to understand what their problems are what their drivers are and what they're trying to achieve. That's the only way you develop proper business relationships and actually deliver value to clients. And I'm a firm believer that business is all based on delivering value and building relationships. So I know you'll see a lot of books out there that used to be in vogue, I'm not sure whether they are these days, about how you manipulate clients into doing a sale. And I don't think that that's the way that business works. I think it's based on integrity and trying to deliver the best value you can to your customers. And to do that, you need to understand their drivers at a human level. A lot of it is about making your client, whoever the sponsor is in the organization, look like a hero. And yes. if you can do that, then you're going to develop a relationship and repeat business. And that's how you start to scale. Exactly. Yeah, making them look like a hero. That is excellent. And tell me, what do you look for in a co-founder? Good question. It's a very difficult question. <laughs> it is a difficult question. And, and sorry, and the reason why, why I ask you is because of the repeated experience through serial entrepreneur, the serial component. That's why I wanted to hear from you about this. I'd caveat this by saying that I haven't always got it right, but we won't talk about yeah, that. Yeah. So I, maybe I'll, I'll just talk to the current team. So our CTO, Owen Shanahi, uh, he's also a co-author of the book. I started working with him for a while and recognized someone who was incredibly good, you know, like a world-class technologist, but also someone who understood the human dimension as well. That was important because once you have two people of that kind of shape, you can cover the technology off. You can grow whatever team under you by having that. One of my other co-founders, uh, Fiona McKenna, she's the CFO. Again, incredibly talented, knows how to deal with that side of the business, which means that I don't have to think about that. Once you yes. trust someone at that level, you just don't have to think about it. And I worked with Fiona before, actually in Nearform. She was the CFO of Nearform. The other two co-founders are based in uh, out in New Jersey, James Dad and Bobby Paulus. And again, I worked with those guys. They were actually 
actually in the um, disaster recovery business. When I was setting this company up, everybody that became co-founders, I'd already had experience of working with. I think that's a good way of picking co-founders is to work with someone for at least six months, maybe a year, so you get to know them. It's the same thing as you wouldn't go on a speed date and marry someone, right? You want to date someone for at least two years before you even consider marriage. And I think it's the same thing with a co-founder of business. True. And the people in New Jersey, what are their responsibilities in the business? Sure. So uh, Bobby is head of sales, sales marketing and so on. And James is uh, head of operations. So he runs the kind of operational day-to-day work on projects. Great. Really interesting to see the difference in responsibilities where in some cases you have more of an overlap in terms of skill set, while in other cases, like what you mentioned with Fiona, that that's being CFO, that's an area that you can say that she can look after and it's sort of not something that you have to think about and it's something that she's good at and you have that complementary relationship, while in other cases, there's a lot of overlap. So that's really interesting. And how did you get started in the AI space? That was by design, actually. It really was by design. I guess because of the work I've been doing over the last few years, which is consulting with large companies, helping them with their digital transformations, it was obvious that part of the outcomes of those transformations, and by transformation, what I mean is taking Microsoft Excel access-driven business processes and lifting them into platforms, typically in in a cloud environment. One of the natural outcomes of that is the generation of lots of data. And the more those platforms become used, the more data is generated, and the more opportunities there are for generation of further business value through analysis of that data. And part of that can be human-based analysis. But increasingly, it will be uh, machine learning driven analytics and decision making on the back of that data. For me, I think that it really was by design. I think that the software industry itself will be profoundly affected by artificial intelligence. The days of large teams of people banging away front end code and rewriting login systems for the hundred thousandth time in in, in the world, they're going away. Those days are going away. There's only a certain number of ways you can organize a form with a number of fields in it to be optimal for users, right? So I think that increasingly we will be moving to an age of machine, I don't want to say machine coding, what I really mean is machine supported software development and analytics, right? There will always be um, humans in the loop because we're a long way off with general artificial intelligence, but that support for business solutions and also for the craft of software engineering itself will increasingly come from machine learning. And therefore, really the, the context of this company is to set up a team of top level experts that can wield that power rather than just trying to put bums on seats to solve problems. Very interesting. And for that, as you're working with clients, do you use, I guess, the code repositories and the code approaches that they have today and add the machine learning and AI to on top of that? Or do you come in with both parts yourself in order to do the machine-assisted code? It depends on the context. So we do work in a greenfield context. So we'll architect a system end-to-end, support development of that system, do some hands-on work, and actually help the client to build their capability. Then on the back of that, we can come in for a second phase and then start to look at the data, start to build the analytics around that and the machine learning solutions on top of that. Sometimes we're looking at systems which are, shall we say, legacy. I guess most of your listeners will understand what I mean by the term software 
software entropy or software rot. So yes. we come in and help with systems that have been commercially successful, but are now at a stage that they've rotted to the point where it's very, very difficult to add new features. And so what we do is I actually have to pick that apart and then move that system forward so that it can start to be productive again. We can start to add faster deployment cycles and then begin to add in machine learning analytics and so on onto the back of them. And that's part of the project I was talking about, the research project, is how do you actually... So at the moment, that's a very manual process to go in and analyze the code base and to understand where the fracture lines are, how you would kind of break a system up into more service-based components rather than a large monolith. We believe, and we are researching at the moment with that project, that that type of analysis is amenable to machine learning. In other words really an exercise in spotting patterns and it should be possible through both static code analysis and dynamic runtime analysis of core frames and so on to spot those fracture lines and develop automatically develop through that machine analysis a suggested architecture as to how you you would break that system into various services it's then incumbent on the human architect to look at the output of that tooling and say okay try this, let's try this, and then rerun that analysis. So that's what I mean by a machine-driven or machine-supported approach to software engineering. I understand. That is fantastic. And then once you have that architectural decision, is that where the knowledge and the content in your book come into play? As you look to create the new version of the system, you can use a lot of APIs to support the... Yes, exactly. Yeah. I guess the thesis of the book is that where we are right now in terms of like systems and data and platforms is really in a kind of bit of a no man's land, right? Because everyone is kind of really excited about containers and Kubernetes and... on. The thesis of the book is that that's really just a transitory phase and we're moving towards true utility computing and that true utility computing is really represented by serverless, which means not just functions in cloud, but AI services in cloud. So I'll give you an example. In the latest chapter I've been writing, we build a, a custom document classifier. That can be achieved by using two or three API calls to actually train a classifier, run that classifier over a large data set, and then build a processing pipeline to put that in, into production. It can be done very quickly. That's really the world that we're heading into. I just don't think everybody realizes it yet. So impressive because I know obviously documents is a big problem for a lot of businesses at the moment. And the fact that that can be done with a few APIs today already, that is outstanding. One of the early chapters, well, actually the first chapter of the book talks about the tale of two technologies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Of course. So really, again, we're basically trying to weave together those two threads, which is the thread of how the unit of scale in software is changing. And by that, we mean if you go back a period of time, you'll see that where we used to deploy very large code bases, that's been shrinking. With the adoption of microservices, that shrinks again. And with the adoption of serverless, that shrinks again. So we're really looking at the change in unit of scale in the units that we manage. And then at the same time, if you look at the development of machine learning and artificial intelligence, it's a technology that's come of age. I'm sure your readers would know a fair bit of the history of and development of that. We've been through at least two AI winters, right? But I think we're now at the point where we can begin to usefully apply this technology and the previous false storms of machine learning are behind us because we are now delivering business value with this technology. And really underpinning all of that is what we like to refer to as the democratizing power of Moore's law. Both of those trends have been driven by the exponential increase in compute power. 
and therefore what we're saying is that as that trend continues and we can have a conversation around Moore's law and physics later if you like but as that trend continues the de facto platform of the future will be serverless and it will be machine driven ml ai driven and therefore this book is like a first manual in how to get up to speed with that technology because we believe that's what's coming down the line and that's the way everybody's going to be working in a few years time I totally agree. And I love the clarity with which you describe it. It definitely clears up the path for me in, in my mind. So how does the day of the software developer of the technology teams, how does their day look different in this new world that we're entering into? That's an interesting question. I guess it depends on where you're starting from. I mean, good software engineers and good data scientists and good scientists in general, I generally find have been doing things before they've been given a name, if that makes sense, right? So I'll give you a couple of examples on that. So one would be uh, unit testing. If you remember back before Agile was a thing, a lot of good software engineers were still writing tests for their systems. They would write test code. It just didn't have a name. They didn't know they were doing an Agile practice of, of unit testing. Another example might be, oh, it's gone from my head now, went to unit testing testing. It'll come back to me. Good people have always been doing the right thing before it's been named. Sorry, here's my example would be microservices. And again, microservices are buzzword. I remember writing systems that were a combination of collaborating small processes before microservices had a name. And then suddenly it's got a name and everyone's doing it. Great, happy days. We've got a name. But so my point is that I think that as you move into this new world, the good software engineers and the good data scientists, they will kind of transition quite smoothly. It's people that aren't adopting the right practices that might find a bit of a fragment and, and a fracture. So, for example, obviously good revision control practices, everybody should be doing that. Good unit functional testing practices, everybody should be doing that. But not everybody is, right? If you build it, you run it. So pushing things to production and being responsible for that, I think, is an increasingly important thing. One of the key differences will be the rapidity of deployment. By that, I mean high-functioning organizations, if you look at Netflix and people like that, are deploying at a pretty frenetic rate, but they're deploying quality at a frenetic rate. I think that will broaden out because as the unit of scale is changing, we're focusing more and more on the business problems and the application logic and less and less on infrastructure. And as that infrastructure piece goes away, the rapidity of deployment will increase. And therefore, I think that will be a change that may be unfamiliar to some developers, depending on the environment they're working in. Very true. And I really like that in the book, you go through applications. So building a serviceless image recognition system, a web application, serviceless way, adding AI interfaces. Why did you decide on this approach for the book in terms of it seems to be quite applications based? Yeah, no, thanks. It's a good question. And it's a fair question. And the reason we did that was to really provide the context there are a lot of books out there that'll teach you to do machine learning. That's what, not what this book is about, right? It's how to apply it. And I think to give a context that a lot of people will be familiar with, web applications and, and so on, is important to help uh, teaching and perhaps reduce the cognitive overload. If you just teach something in isolation, it doesn't necessarily make as much sense. But if you teach it within a context of a full system, I think it can often help. At the end of the day, the 
have all of the answers. I guess we're just trying to optimize for the best book we could. So I'll give you another example. In the chapter that uh, we've just uh, submitted, which will be published shortly, we look at how to apply machine learning to existing systems. And so we examine some different patterns around connecting machine learning capabilities into kind of legacy technology estates. And then we build two systems to show that. So one system is how do you improve identification? So part of a business process today might be to scan a utility bill or a passport or something. Extraction of information from those can now be done through machine. So therefore, just adding an additional API to your platform to do that gives a context as to how it can be useful and how it can save kind of human drudgery in a business context. And then the other one is building a full data processing pipeline um, using Kinesis and, um, and various other API-driven serverless services to actually do sentiment analysis, document classification, and so on in the context of a real-world business process that people might be familiar with. And that way, I think you, you get to understand a bit more about how the solutions can be fitted in context, but also hopefully inspire people to make the connections between what they're doing within their work environment and how the technology could be applied to that. That's right. Really great. Another approach that you're taking in the book that I really like is that you're focusing on software developers, or at least one of the main target audiences. You mentioned that knowledge of AI is not necessary in order to get started to use AI as a service. Can you tell me a, a little bit about your thoughts on why that approach? And I think it's a really nice and fresh perspective where I think that at the moment, I find that there's so much focus on of people saying, how do I learn about machine learning and AI? How do I start taking paths down learning about data science so I can combine it with my existing skills being software engineering or business and etc. But a lot of people are focusing on acquiring the skills themselves from scratch. While I really like the approach that you guys have taken with the book around saying you can tap into these services as a service without needing to be an expert in it and get so much value out of it. What led you down that path? I think, well, I guess it's primarily because that's not just in AI that's happening, right? If you look at other areas, security would be a key one. In the past, everybody wanted their own security department in, in a large corporate because they all knew best. But increasingly, there's, a, there's an understanding that by using pre-tested battle-hardened services, you don't need to have your own security layer in, in your code because other people have already done it better than you. So why would you go through the pain of doing it again, right? So for example, a user login system, how many people have written user login systems bespoke, how many have taken libraries and then customized them, how much kind of human pain has been caused by the repetition of all of that work, right? Whereas now we don't need to. We can plug into services like AuthZero or whatever. If I never build another login system again, I'll be a happy man. Do you know what I mean, right? Because they start off, people think this is going to be really simple and it ends up being incredibly complex, right? And I think it's the same thing with machine learning. Don't get me wrong, I'd encourage people that have a, an interest in the topic and, and want to get deep into machine learning, data science, and, and building, researching and building their own novel algorithms. That's laudable and great. And if I had the time, I'd love to be doing that myself. But for most people, we just need to get business results. So we need an understanding of the technology at a certain level and which algorithms or which approaches can apply in which context, but then use what somebody else has done because the cloud providers, Google, Azure, Amazon, have already hired a lot of very, very smart people to build this technology. And therefore, we should take advantage of it rather than think that we can do a better job because nine times out of 10, unless it's an incredibly specific area that needs real refinement, we're probably not going to do better. 
Very, very true. That's excellent. And tell me, either within your company or in the clients that you work with, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the talent management in this space. And so either within your company or with your clients, what are the views that you have on building and acquiring talent in this space? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. So good people in this space are very difficult to find. It's quite a rarefied skill set. When you look at kind of programmers in general, they're difficult to find good ones. When you go up a level and say, well, someone that can architect a system and also code, that's difficult again. And then when you yeah. look at the data scientists and machine learning experts, they're again, more difficult again to find, right? And of course, we're a small company, so we're competing for talent with the likes of Amazon and Google and so on, who can pay silly wages to people straight out of college. So really, Really, our approach is based on a fair reward. So I, having been through a number of startups, I did kind of realize or I did think that they can often be unfair in the sense that if you're employee number one in the door, you might luck out and get a good chunk of shares or a good chunk of share options just through an accident of time. But there may be people that come along later in the company's history that actually add a lot more value that don't get rewarded at the same level. I also think that founders tend to get rewarded a lot more than they're actually worth because it's actually the people in the company that drive success. And that's not just the founders. Yes, the founders need to be rewarded. Yes, they do take a certain amount of risk and that, that risk really mandates some reward, but not to the level that I think that we, that we see out there in the market. So what our approach in for Theorem is to split the equity of the company in two. Only 50% is allocated to the founders and the other 50% is available to staff that join the company and, and join in our mission. So the way we've structured that is that on a liquidity event, so an exit or some form of IPO or sale, 50% of the value will be available to the staff for distribution. I think that's a much fairer model than the models that we see out there in the market right now. And we've taken that with that, that angle with bonus as well. So any bonuses accrued in the company uh, get split 50-50, shared out between founders and staff. Um, we're also aiming to be open book in that we share a lot of the decisions with staff as well. We don't practice mushroom management. Um, we make sure that everybody is happy. So we're trying to run a more democratic organization rather than the kind of oligarchic organizations that you tend to see in large organizations. That is really, really interesting. I think it's definitely the future, I think, is around having more democratic organizations. What are some of the ways or the maybe practices or processes that you guys use or have implemented in your business that helps you go on that path or do that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of them is that we're, we're happy to share the management. We run regular management meetings where we discuss, obviously, direction of the company company and all of that kind of stuff amongst the senior management team. Those meetings are open to staff to dial into if they wish. Obviously, there are, occasionally there are conversations that need to be closed off for a period of time. We try and make that as open as possible so that there's nothing hidden. What I've experienced in the past is that the more private conversations you have, the more people talk, the more you have rumors. That just doesn't help. So to be as, as upfront and honest about everything as you possibly can tends to reduce the number of skeletons in the closet, which helps. Um, the other kind of process is that we are whilst there is a hierarchy in a certain sense, we try and keep the company as flat as possible. And certainly from a technical perspective, the company is flat. So I would expect to have an environment where an intern who's been in the door for a week, if he sees there's something wrong, should be able to call out the CTO and should be able to feel comfortable doing that. If we can have that type of environment, then I think we've succeeded. And you see this, I think you see this in, in some high functioning organizations, right? So if you look at the military, for example, a very hierarchical type of structure, but if you look at the high-functioning teams, the SEALs and SAS and that kind of stuff, they're actually flat in terms of operations. And I think that model is important. 
That's true. And when you mentioned that essentially 50% of the company and of the bonuses are for staff, how is that? Obviously, with as you don't have to give us the full detail, but <laughs> what does that distribution look like? Do you do it by tenure, by contribution? How is that, that distribution done? The aim is to do it more by contribution, but there has to be a tenure piece in it as well, right? So there is definitely an earning period to get to your full kind of level. And then, but once you're in at that, that full level, it's really by role and contribution. So obviously, there's a larger split for people that are working at a, a say, a kind of partner consulting type level than for people that are working at a kind of junior programmer level but everybody benefits is the key thing and everybody can obviously increase their share or benefit by doing good work and moving around within the reward structure but we do like to keep that open so everybody knows where they sit so there's no surprises right that is fantastic. Uh, practices that I, at least I hope that it would be adopted by more organizations. That is really, really great. And tell me, sometimes in organizations, as the transparency increases and the logic behind strategic decisions is shared, sometimes people find it difficult to understand or maybe get comfortable with the logic behind the strategic decisions. I've seen cases where there is not a, a bit of backlash, but maybe a slowness in progress from the ranks within the company because they don't fully agree with the logic behind the strategic decision. Have you had anything similar to that that you've had to deal with in your setup of openness and transparency? Not so far. Not in this company. No, not so far. No, I'm not saying that that might happen in the future, of course. But I think that the best way to deal with those kinds of things is through logic because generally Mm. most people are good actors. They may not agree with a particular direction because maybe they haven't seen all of the angles or maybe just maybe you're wrong and you need to listen to them because they might be right so i do think that building that consensus is important i mean obviously sometimes you need to take fast decisions but those are more tactical rather than strategic right with a broad brush strategy i do think the consensus and the the value of a group mind is much higher than someone thinking they know best and making a decision without consultation so it hasn't happened in this company yet it may i think then it's time to listen and make sure that we understand all of the angles because we could be wrong as well right we being the management team right correct no that is really interesting and this leads on to one of the other questions that i had for you which is around organizational politics can you tell me about well your experience with politics either within your companies or with clients and what are some of the approaches that you've developed over the years to handle and manage this a big challenge for a lot of people i don't know whether i have any answers to be honest obviously i've most all my career i've exclusively worked for what would be termed small organizations you know no more than 150 staff so although i have spent a lot of time interacting from the outside in looking at large organizations and that's quite interesting there's definitely a um, a mentality change or a mentality difference between large large organizations and smaller companies, which is why large companies tend to use smaller companies, right? Because there's that cultural difference. And a lot of that difference is around getting things done and being effective, I find. The danger in large organizations is there's always somewhere to hide. People can hide through playing politics. Whereas in a smaller organization, there isn't really anywhere to hide. So you tend to get more effective people working in smaller organizations. Maybe that's unfair. I'm sure there are cases out there that disprove that rule, but um, it's been my experience. I do think that if you look at a lot of large organizations, there's probably a small amount of people that are actually adding value. And then there's all of the support 
that goes along with it that isn't really adding business value per se, right? So I'm thinking about accounting, legal, and all that kind of stuff. Whilst those are necessary things for a large organization, they're not moving the needle per se. It's the guys in the engine house, the data scientists and the coders and so on that are actually driving value in the business, not necessarily those other parts. And that's where the politics starts to come in, I think. But what we find is that as well is that large organizations can become quite slow moving. And I'm, I'm sure you all of us have experienced this at, at times. And part of our role as a, as a kind of fast moving consultancy is to go in and help break some of that stasis. And often times that can often be just giving them the permission to fail, if you see what I mean. So some of the work that we would do would be to go and help establish innovation departments within large organizations or to work with the innovation departments and help to bring a culture of fail fast into those areas. And like I said, a lot of the times it's um, giving the sponsors of those initiatives the permission to fail. In other words, you give them somebody else to blame, which is us. They feel emboldened enough to take a couple of risks oh. move things forward, right? Because they can always blame the consultant. But that's fine. That's what we get paid for. It's great that you start from, from that place of both wanting to make your client look like a hero and also helping them have a safety net or an escape code in order to for them to take on more risk. It's a really good approach to start off with. How does that usually go with clients? Usually very successfully because generally what we bring to the picture as well, of course, is an, an enormous amount of experience of solving different problems. And that's why companies like ours are valuable because we bring the breadth of experience. It's not that we're saying we're any smarter than the guys that work in there. We're not. There's a team of very, very smart people. But what we bring to the table is the experience of doing many, many, many different systems and solving many, many more problems. And that context gives us the confidence to say this will work in this context and be able to follow through and hit problems as they develop to eventually make sure that we do deliver success. Really great. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I wanted to change tack a little bit and go into a couple of audience questions. And one of the first ones is, what do you see that makes a great leader in this space? It's an interesting question, actually. And I know there's a lot of books that probably been written about leadership and so on, which you could go and read. But I think within the technical space, particularly around data science and software in general, there's a few kind of additional pieces that, that are required. I think, first of all, curiosity is important, but I think that's not necessarily a leadership trait, but it's certainly a trait of data scientists and, and scientists in general. And I do think that there is a trend or a characteristic that also comes through in all good scientists and engineers, which is a general disregard for authority. And by what by that, what I mean is that um, we tend to respect facts, we tend to respect the scientific method, and not to uh, respect appeals to authority, which I think is a good trait. So I think that anyone who wants to be a leader within that space also have those characteristics and to understand those are the drivers of the people that they're leading. That really then says that to be an effective leader, you have to be authentic and authentically follow the facts and respect the method and be able to say, I'm wrong or I don't know, let's research that. You're not supposed to have all the answers as a leader. I think the other thing is to hire the best people. Sometimes I've seen in technical leaders a certain sense of fear. In other words, they'll hire people that they think aren't as good as them because then they can be have some kind of hierarchy over them. And that's obviously a very, very bad idea. You should be looking to hire people that are better than you because you, you can always learn from them. And the other thing I 
think, is to try and remove ego from the picture. An egotistical leader is typically a, a failing leader, in, in my view. It's all about the team, how you can bring the team forward, and how you can remove blockages to allow the team to do the best work. So it's that kind of selfless curiosity, I think, is one of the key characteristics I would see. Very interesting. And do you see the leader who has that curiosity and that approach, do you see them being very involved with the work itself that the team is doing and sort of helping from the trenches? What, what, what are your views? I do think that, yes, absolutely. I think that there's a, the architect who doesn't code anymore, who just draws boxes and arrows, oh, quickly yeah. comes disconnected from the technology and quickly loses the respect of, uh, of the team they're leading. And I think that's true in data science as well. The leader who doesn't keep up with the latest technologies quickly loses some respect because you need to keep your hands on the technology to be an effective leader. In other domains, you don't, right? So if you're leading a team of, I don't know, chefs or something else, right, you can be an effective leader, a team of accountants, you can be an effective leader without necessarily needing to be a good hands-on accountant, right? Whereas I think within this space, because things change so rapidly, part of your job as a leader is to keep up to date with all of the latest technology. Otherwise, you you can't be effective or or within two years, you'll be completely ineffective as a leader. Very true. One thing that I've been wondering through our conversation, I want to ask, how do you maximize your impact? And it might be around either priorities or time management or something else. But how do you schedule your work to maximize impact personally and your teams? I'm so curious because of everything that you've done. I think it's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it. I don't know whether I have a a good answer to that one, to be honest. I think I'd make a couple of comments, though. Really, when working for a client, we would try and really be quite ruthless with what we're delivering. There are mental tools you can use to to kind of focus that. One of the questions we would always ask is, what's the biggest problem right now? What's the biggest pain point? Solve that. What's the next one? And keep solving down the line. Another good mental tool to apply is the asking why five times. Why is this a problem? Why do we need to fix it? Blah, 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 all the way down. Often you can, problems can dissolve just by asking those questions. And that's a very effective way of helping your clients. Just try to apply the simplest possible thing you can do to solve a problem mm-hmm. and the minimum necessary effort. So the two phrases I always keep in mind are KISS, obviously, keep it simple, superstar, and YAGNI, right? You ain't going to need it. So have those in mind as you work through solutions. The other key thing, I think, in our line of business is to make sure that we get stakeholder engagement. What what can go wrong sometimes is that you get pointed at a problem by a stakeholder and then they disappear. We actually won't work in that way because that doesn't really help anybody. You need engagement from the client. You need that constant feedback. So making sure you get that engagement. And that, that's true, not just in our context where we're working for an external company, but also within the context of a, of a large organization. If you're a data science leader, software leader within one of those organizations, you need to make sure that the stakeholders are bought into your process and what you're delivering and that there's that constant feedback cycle. If you're not doing that, your chances of being effective are much lower. Very wise words. Peter, this has been outstanding. I have so much value from this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, your learnings, your thoughts. Absolutely phenomenal. I only have one last question for you. That is for a takeaway for the listeners. What would you like to leave them with? That's an interesting question. Let me think now. So one thing I always talk about with my colleagues is the importance of trying to be a polyglot. And by that, I mean, try to learn as many languages and tools and technologies as you can. Um, There's something in psychology 
methodology called the Warsafia hypothesis. May or may not have come across it, but it speaks to how people with multiple languages, by that I mean conversational languages, actually have uh, different shaped brains in the sense that they have different mental tools for attacking problems. And I think that's true within the technical domain as well. So that the first piece of advice I'd say is to try and master a new language or technology every six months. And wow. in five years, you'll look back and uh, you'll come so much further forward. Actively caring about the craft and actively developing your skills is, is really important. The other thing I'd say, particularly in a data science context, is that just bear in mind that the um, easiest person to fool is yourself. That's yeah. a quote by Richard, by Richard Feynman. Of course, being a physicist, I would be a big fan of Feynman's work. So always bear that in mind, right, that we all carry around cognitive biases. Just by being aware of those biases, it can help us to overcome them. That means to have the integrity to follow where the data goes. I think that's really important in the world that we live in now. The ability to have critical thinking skills is so important. I would hope that that's actually a skill I, I would like to see taught at, at primary school level is critical thinking. Yes. One of my key things when, when you see the news and you have someone come on and they say, do you believe in climate science or do you believe in climate change? Of course, that's completely the wrong question. It's not, do you believe in it? It's true Correct. whether you believe in it or not. The question is, do you understand it? There's far too much of this kind of like, it's my personal truth stuff going around at the moment. It's not. Mm. There are facts. You should bear that in mind, particularly as data scientists and scientists in general. It's our job to protect that way of thinking and to encourage and grow that way of thinking. So I'd encourage anyone that's in the space to remember that and to maintain that personal integrity and to spread it into the world, I guess. Outstanding. Fantastic note to end on. Peter, thank you so much once again. This has been absolutely terrific. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Philippe. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much indeed. Me too. Thank you. Data Source Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Data Source is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science, and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.